So what are we going? Oh God, what are we going to do, Romana? Well, I'm going to introduce you first. Okay. And then we're going to. Um, you're going to read. Okay. And then I'm going to talk to you, and then we're all going to talk to you. Okay. So I'll start, shall I? Yeah, yeah. Good morning and, and welcome to this bookcase event of the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Um, and uh, the bookcase event showcases contemporary, the best of contemporary literature, and that's what we're about to hear today. And welcome to the British Council guests who are here for the bookcase event, and welcome to you all. I'm Ramona Koval from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, and this morning we're in the presence of Hanif Qureshi, commander of the British Empire. Be respectful. I might call him commander a bit later. Um, <laughs> Hanif Qureshi is a marvel. He is an incredibly successful and multiply awarded writer of just about anything, novels, short stories, screenplays, plays, non-fiction, essays. He's here in Edinburgh with this new novel called Something to Tell You, in which we meet Dr. Jamal Khan, a Freudian psychoanalyst who tells us of his own journey through 1970s suburbia, his first love, his family, his history of fears and longings, <coughs> and as Ibsen put it, his travels with a corpse in his cargo. But as with uh, most of Hanif Qureshi's work, it's also about the big picture, a look at Britain in crisis, at the West in crisis, all moderated by Hanif Qureshi's sharp eye, his wit, and his willingness to go everywhere, anywhere, and to tell us what he sees. Please welcome him to Edinburgh. Thank you. It's terrific for me to be here, actually. It's a real pleasure. Um, in 1984, I first came to the Edinburgh Festival, um, the film I wrote, My Beautiful Laundrette. And I came up with Tim Bevan, who produced the film, and Daniel Day-Lewis, who starred in it. And uh, we shared a flat together for, uh, for a few days. Um, um, the film uh, was first shown here, and it became successful, and people seemed to like it. And when we went home again, everything was different for all of us. Um, they became very rich. Um, I returned to the council flat where I was living. But I became aware after that week uh, that it was possible for me that, to be a writer, to make a living, I guess, for, at least for some time as a writer. Um, so I've got many happy memories of, of, of that uh, week here and many stories. In fact, I was going to tell you, but I'm not going to tell you now, actually. <laughs> I'm a man of discretion and respectability at all times. All right. A man goes to a psychoanalyst and he says, please, sir, I'm desperate. If you cure me, I'll give you my fortune. The analyst replies, I don't want your fortune, sir. It's just 50 quid a session. <laughs> the man says, 50 pounds? Why so much? To which the analyst replies, at least you know the price. At least you know the price. I am a psychoanalyst and secrets are my currency. I deal in secrets for a living. The secrets of desire, of what people really want, and what they fear the most. The secrets of why love is difficult, sex complicated, living painful, and death close, and yet placed far away. Why are pleasure and punishment closely related? How do our bodies speak? 
Why do we make ourselves ill? And why do you want to fail? Why is pleasure so hard to bear? I'm a reader of minds and of signs. Sometimes I'm called a shrinkster, a healer, a detective, an opener of doors, or a dirt digger. Like a car mechanic on his back, I work with the underneath or the understory. Fantasies, wishes, lies, dreams, nightmares, the world beneath the world, the true words beneath the false. The weirdest intangible stuff I take seriously, and I'm into places where words can't go, or where they stop, and I do all this early in the morning too. <laughs> Giving sorrow words, I hear the secrets of how people's desire upsets and terrorizes them, the mysteries that burn a hole in the self and distort and even cripple the body. The wounds of experience reopen for the good of the soul as it's made over. At the deepest level, you'll find that people are madder than they want to believe. You'll find, if you inspect the invisible and listen out for the soundless, that people fear that they'll be eaten. Indeed, they're also alarmed by their desire to devour others. They also imagine, in the ordinary course of things, that they will explode, implode, dissolve, or be invaded. Their daily lives are penetrated by fears that their love relations involve, among other things, the exchange of urine and feces. As the great Viennese satirist Karl Kraus warned, and this was a man characterized as a mad half-wit by Freud, it's the most tragic thing in the world for the fetishist who wants only a shoe but has to marry the whole woman. <laughs> Always, before any of this began, I enjoyed gossip, an essential qualification for my job. Now I get to hear a lot of it, a river of human filth flowing into me day after day, year after year. Like many modernists, Freud privileged, privileged filth. You could call him the first artist of the found, making meaning out of that which is usually discarded. It's dirty work getting closely acquainted with the human. There's something else going on in my life now, too, almost an incest, and who could have predicted it? Miriam, my older sister, and my best friend Henry have conceived a passion for one another. Until him, her only other contact with the world of letters was through the postman. Now all our separate existences are being altered and shaken by this unlikely liaison. It had taken me a long time to come to enjoy Miriam, since she caused mum such hair-tearing, brain-whirring upset. Me too, of course. But my ex-wife Josephine had liked my sister Miriam. I think she envied her selfishness, as women often do, saying, however, that Miriam talked and talked in the hope of finding something to say, <laughs> comparing the endless stream of her conversation to the experience of having a plastic bag tightened slowly over your face. <laughs> I cannot forget, though, that whatever chaos Miriam has made, here and in Pakistan, it's not as bad as the crime that I've committed. I live every day with a murder, a real one. I'm a killer, me, so watch your back. There, I've told you, it's out. Now everything between us is different. Until I put down those words, I trusted only one other person with the information. I guess if it got around that I was a murderer, my career as a mind doctor might have been impeded. The area in which I live, between Hammersmith and Shepherd's Bush, I heard once described as a roundabout surrounded by misery. 
Someone else suggested it might be twinned with Bogota. Hijabed Middle Eastern women shop in the market where you can buy massive bolts of vivid cloth, crocodile skin shoes, scratchy underwear, jewelry, snide DVDs, parrots, luggage, as well as illuminated 3D pictures of Mecca and of Jesus. One time in the old city of Marrakesh, I was asked if I'd seen anything like it before. I could only reply that I'd come all this way and need to be reminded of Shepherd's Bush Market. <laughs> My sister lived in the suburbs of Middlesex, once described as Britain's least popular county. Tonight, I was drawn to my sister's face, but kissing it was perilous. You had to take care when kissing my sister, to mind the numerous rings and studs which pierced her eyebrows, her nose, her lips, and her chin. Parts of her face resembled a curtain rail. <laughs> Avoid magnets. <laughs> was the only cosmetic advice I felt was applicable to her. Now, it was five kids she had, I think, from three different men. Or was it three kids from five men? <laughs> I wasn't the only one to lose count. In a corner of her kitchen, Bushy, the minicab driver, and my sister's right-hand man, was packing cigarettes into a suitcase. All over the house, there were black sacks of contraband, like a giant's droppings. Before he'd become a cabbie, Bushy had been a burglar. He considered himself to be a mate of mine ever since I told him that as a young man, I myself had been torn between burglary and academia as careers. <laughs> I had, in fact, even taken part in a little burglary. This was, of course, before I became a pornographer. You can't say I didn't have the heritage for writing pornography. My father had been a writer. When Miriam and I were staying with him in Karachi in the early 80s, Papa liked me to help him with his weekly column, which he'd discussed while being shaved by his servant. Papa was working on a piece ostensibly about families called The Son-in-Law Also Rises. <laughs> it was giving him difficulty because once he had written it straightforwardly, he then had to obscure it, turning it into a kind of poetic po code so the reader would understand it, but not the obtuse authorities who threatened on a couple of occasions to chuck my dad in jail. Dad's weekly column on diverse subjects, all obliquely political. His essay on the fact that people wash too often and would have more personality if they were dirtier, thus expressing themselves more honestly, was really about water shortages. And his essay about the subtle beauty of darkness and the velvet folds of the night, etc., was really about the daily electricity breakdowns and nuclear power. Then, one day, visiting my uncle's house with my father, I noticed, standing side on to the door, four doe-eyed beauties. I contemplated them like a cat a box of fresh mice, but it was the youngest I wanted, as she reminded me of my true love, Ajita, who had only recently disappeared. Oh, Ajita, if you are still alive, where are you now, and do you ever think of me? You were my first love, but I was not yours. So, I must really begin this story, unusually, at the beginning. It was the mid-70s. It's always the mid-70s somehow. And one day a girl walked into the classroom, as girls tend to do, when you're not ready. Her face was flushed and uneasy as she came in half an hour after the class had started, put down her car keys, cigarettes, and several glossy magazines, none of which had the word philosophy in the title. 
Now this girl was at one of those chairs with a swiveling flat piece of wood attached for writing on, and she was pulling off her hat, removing her scarf, and trying to lay them on the flat surface. They slid off, I picked them up and put them back again, and they fell off again. Sumi was smiling at all this. Her coat came off next, followed by her jumper, but where would she put them, and what would be next? This performance, which was embarrassing her and enchanting me, seemed to go on for a long time, and with everyone watching. How much clothing, perfume, hair, jewellery and other frills could there be on the relatively small surface of a girl? Suddenly philosophy and the search for truth, which until that moment I had adored, seemed a dingy thing. The grimacing professor in erect pullover and stained trousers, old to us, my age now, or probably younger, and in a fog of Valium, as he insisted on informing us, seemed like a clown. We stared at one another whenever he said, with emphasis, cunt, which was, he assured us, the correct English pronunciation for the philosopher, Immanuel Kant. <laughs> Truth was one thing, but beauty beside me now was clearly another. Thank you. Thank you. That line, it's dirty work getting closely acquainted with a human. It's the work of the psychoanalyst, but is it also the work of the writer too? I have several uh, friends who are psychoanalysts, and I really envy them. Um, a lot of my work is like theirs, lying on the sofa work. Um, but they have the privilege of listening to other people all day, and I, I envy the the weirdness that they come, become acquainted with hour after hour, as you can imagine. Um, and I spend most of my time, you know, alone trying to think of stuff to say, whereas they listen to other people. And I guess it's both, you know, they try and make people better. They try and cure people. And Freud said this fascinating thing about curing. He said it would be a very weird world, he said, if everybody was in psychoanalysis, you know. It would be like, I don't know, Buenos Aires, where everybody indeed is in psychoanalysis. <laughs> um, but I think th there's another kind of therapy, which is not only writing therapy, the therapy of writing books, but the therapy of reading books and the therapy of, of living in a culture, which is where we come to see one another, to know one another, and to understand one another. So psychoanalysis, I guess, is a small part <coughs> of culture, of writing, and of literature. Freud also thought that if you wanted to be a psychoanalyst, you shouldn't only study psychoanalysis. He thought that a real uh, education was a humanistic education, i.e. that you would read proper writers who he thought had anticipated everything he'd said already. But your work as a writer is dirty work too. I mean, you get down into the, the human soul yourself. I mean, that's what creating a character is, isn't it? Um, that's what I do, yeah. It's an odd thing. I sit in a room and I try and make up, I make up stories and try and make people alive. Yes, that's what I do for a living. It's a peculiar thing. I try and invest these characters with parts of myself and with parts of themselves and with some life. And I, then I try and put them in nasty situations um, that expose them. And then we as audiences identify with them and believe they're real. 
It sounds very odd, doesn't it, now, when you put it like that? But well, that's what the Edinburgh Book Festival is dedicated to, yes. <laughs> the, the psychoanalyst as, as a character, though, I mean, they are fascinating, because when you, you go to them, they seem to be um, perfect people who know everything and are and all seeing, all knowing, all understanding. Um, your psychoanalyst has got this dark secret and has got a pretty messy life. Um, I wonder if we knew that they had messy lives, whether we'd continue to, to be cured by them. Well, as you say, Ramona, the, the, the patient, presumably, as you do when you visit any other kind of doctor, you have to believe that this person knows more than you do, that they've had some training and, and all that stuff. Um, i.e. you put them in the place, as Lacan puts it, of the master. Um, but if you look at Freud's early chums, the first circle around Freud, apart from Freud himself, he was a very conventional and repressed man, a good example of a successful sublimation. The rest of them were barking, barking, <laughs> really, all of them. Like who? Well, Jung was psychotic, Ferenczi, uh, Adler, Tals committed suicide, uh, Jones was thrown out of Canada for exposing himself to schoolgirls. Um, they're a very weird bunch. Um, but the point of psychoanalysis isn't to make people not weird. It's not to make people straight. It's not to make them normal or ordinary. It's to make them as mad as they want to be. And that's, and that's quite a different project. <laughs> You've had psychoanalysis, haven't you? Absolutely. I'm a fine example of... <laughs> <laughs> How's the project going? 20 years of successful treatment. <laughs> yes. Well, I woke up in the middle of the night in, the ho in my hotel room on my knees, crying, believing that I turned into a dolphin. And I had a very strong desire to ring my analyst and tell him this, so I can, I can, I can report to you, Ramona, that things are, things are, uh, are moving ahead slowly. <laughs> Do dolphins have knees? Have knees? Mm. That's a very good point, actually. <laughs> but, you know, so many writers are worried about doing analysis. They would say, they say, I would never do that because that would dry up my unconscious and, and I wouldn't ever be able to write because I'd be able to, I'd understand myself too well. What do you think about that position? I think at the, be at the beginning of an analysis, there was a big, in the early 20th century, there was a big rivalry between analysts and artists. You know, the, the, the analysts thought the artists, uh, for instance, had a special access to the unconscious, which they do. And the artists thought the analysts were making, in, making scientific what they achieved poetically, as it were. And there was a you know, big resistance between the two groups. Um, but I, I, an, an analysis isn't, isn't going to cure you of your madness. It's going to uh, make you see that it's valuable, that it's important, that indeed your madness is your life, if you're lucky. That that's the best bit of you. Um, that's where you're probably freest. Um, and I've, I, I, I never found an analysis that, that, as it were, I became so cured that I didn't want to write anymore. I mean, writing is the best symptom. You, what you want is a good symptom, if you're lucky. Do you know what I mean? And writing is a very, being an artist is a fantastically good symptom to have of all the symptoms that it's possible to have. Lacan says, and Zizek uh, follows him by saying, in the end, what you learn in analysis is, is, it, is to enjoy your symptom. 
you know, if you're, if you're fucking mad, you might as well make the most of it. I think that's the idea. Um, I, I don't think that you're going to be cured of your creativity by, by having an analysis any more than you're going to be cured, as it were, of your sexuality by having an analysis. You just see what it is and realize it's part of your condition. Have you, um, have you noticed that it's uh, made you write differently or approach writing differently or it's, it's allowed you to reach into places that you wouldn't have reached into? I found that having analysis and thinking about dreams, my own dreams in particular, gave me access to parts of the, myself that I wouldn't have thought were important before, yeah. Yeah, it, yes, it's really that. That I s it opened, as it were, doors in my psyche and there was good stuff in there for me to write about, yeah. Mm. Yes. But also, the main thing about analysis, really, for me, and I guess for a lot of people, is it stop you doing things that are particularly self-destructive, particularly idiotic at certain times in your life, I think. I, 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 and, but, and also, the other thing about it is, like writing, creative writing too, is that it creates a space between your office, between your house, your family and so on. There's this private, quiet space. Freud invented this brilliant thing where two people would just sit, you know, once a day to talk about the deepest, most important thing. And, you know, you're not going to get that by taking antidepressants. Or getting married or anything like that. Or getting married, no. Um. <laughs> The epigraph to this book is um, from a Robert Johnson song, I went down to the crossroads, fell down on my knees, talking of knees, and, and about a man selling his soul really for art, wasn't it? Um, selling his soul to the devil Yeah. for art. Yeah. Later on in the song, I went to the crossroads, Mama, I looked east and west. So this book also is um, uh, engaged with the idea of the decadent West, what's going on in the East, the clash of civilizations, if, if that's a phrase that, that you want to use. Can you, can you tell me about this Robert Johnson song? Um, well, I think if you're a writer, you look for somebody at a crossroads. You, you throw a character into a situation where they have to think hard about who they are and how they want to live. And when I'm teaching so-called creative writing or I'm looking at my own work, I will do that. And so you, it's what we used to call in the 60s an existential moment, where someone is, 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 as it were, stripped down to their essential values, where they really think about who they want to be and what they, what they want to um, exist as, I suppose. Um, and my character in this book um, has murdered somebody. The one act, as it were, that that can't really be symbolized, that, as it were, you can't share with your friends and uh, have it integrated, as it were, into the social system. Um, and he has to live with this guilt. Freud said we're all murderers, i.e., of, of, of our parents at some time, and this is the cargo that you talked about, uh, the body, which is the cargo and the soul. Um, and it's really about how this man tries to come to terms with having killed somebody and having killed the father of... Um, of a woman that he's in love with. Killing fathers is always a bad business. Um, and killing fathers, as we also all know, is not a good way of getting rid of them. In fact, killing people is a guaranteed way of making them come back, as the whole history of ghosts will obviously informs us. So it's a book about ghosts of being haunted and what you do with your past, how you live with your past, how you, the past 
has to be integrated and can't be integrated into the present. But it's also interesting. It's a comedy, clearly a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is funny too. But there, as a reader, you have a very interesting experience of um, feeling as if you're being addressed by Jamal. He's telling you his story. He's um, he's admitting to you that he's a murderer, and then he's just telling you everything about his world, his his family, his his, his sort of his sex life, his his fears, his hopes, his his dreams. And you, you think, actually, I feel like he's analyst as a reader. I mean, it's almost like I'm, I'm privy to his analysis. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yes. Yes. Well, in a way, we are each other's analysts, too. That's one of the things we do for each other, is we hear each other in a particular way, too. And that's the model for what a, a real analysis is, which is really a particular kind of listening to other people. And it's not only something that takes place in the analytic hour, but as it were, you pick up things un with your unconscious from their unconscious, as it were, all the time. You're, you're very good and funny about the whole, the, the use of psychoanalysis. Um, I think um, he says, Jamal says, there are few people who, when they're old, wish they'd lived a more virtuous life. From what I hear in my room, most people wish they'd sinned more. They also wish they'd taken better care of their teeth. But um, uh, sometimes I thought that actually I'm not sure whether um, I can believe everything that uh, Jamal tells me because I think maybe he's um, fantasizing here as well. Is that right? Yeah. Is that what I'm supposed to have surmised? Yes, it's quite hard, isn't it, to tell the difference between... Well, we live in a... We, our minds are a mixture of dreams, of fantasies, of wishes, of hopes, of desires, and of real experiences in the world, you know, in this tent now today. Um, but the meaning of being in this tent here now today is obviously surrounded by all kinds of dreams, fantasies, wishes, ideas, ideals, and so on. So the whole notion of reality is so, um, as it were, dodgy, um, impossible to pin down. And we do live in this strange space of dreams, fantasies, and so on. Um, so a, a book would be like a dream or a fantasy. I mean, you, uh, you can see that in all of literature when you read Kafka or when you read Shakespeare, certainly Dostoevsky too, you get a real sense of there's a real, the, the, the boundaries are blurred between what, what is commonly and rather stupidly known as reality and then the inner psychic world. You mentioned the, that it, uh, we, we go back into the 70s. I mean, the 70s, we sort of sound like it's a monolithic thing called the 70s, but obviously different people's 70s have been different for them. Yeah. Um, you know, one person's 70s might be full of babies and nappies and the other person's 70s might be full of drugs. But in your 70s or in the 70s that you, you want to write about here, what, what's the sort of um, the, the, the social temperature of the place that you, you describe? Well, I write about the 70s a lot because I was, uh, I was in my uh, t uh, early 20s and it was during the period of punk and it was quite lively and London was sort of decaying, exploding and falling apart. And we were, we were, it was before the great revolution, or the great leap forward, which occurred in 1979 when Mrs. Thatcher came elected. Um, but London was a fantastic space then for, for young people because nothing ever worked and everything seemed to be free. 
you could travel on the tube, you could squat, and everybody was on the dole. I realized the other day that how lucky I'd been in a way that I was, when I look at my children, that I grew up entirely uh, on the welfare state. My parents didn't pay for my education, as you can see from that. Um, nor for my health care, and etc., etc. I was a welfare state kid. And then after I went to university, I went on the dole. That's what we did. You went on the dole and you became an artist or a musician or, or, or whatever. Um, and that did sort of end in the 1980s. So the 70s uh, did have a particular flavor of freedom, even though it was a sort of filthy, decaying, wretched time too. And the pursuit of pleasure? Well, I was born in the 1950s when there was no pleasure. Um, and I uh, came to consciousness in the 60s when there was nothing else. And we end up here today wondering about uh, the period that we've been through. Uh, and, the, you know, in, in the 50s and 60s, the idea was that if everybody could have sex all the time with as many people as they wanted, everything would be all right in the future. And now we live in a time when everyone can have sex with whoever they want, whenever they want. Um, and we're still miserable. <laughs> and it's been a very interesting ride, therefore. <laughs> and so this book, compared to a, a book like The Buddha of Suburbia, is a much darker book and a much more disillusioned book. Uh, it's really about where her, our hopes and dreams went. After all, we all believe that if the generation of 1968 would come to power, um, everything would be much better, too. And then we ended up with Tony Blair. Um, so this is a much darker, as I say, look. But you've got these fantastic characters. Um, Jamal's friend, Henry, who you met just before, um, and, and his sister, Miriam. Um, they're such great characters. I mean, uh, Henry, the, sort of the artist, Miriam, sort of pretty rough, a bit sh shady dealer, really. Well, she's the one with all the um, uh, metal on her face. They find each other, and they, and they sort of have this joyous relationship. Yeah. There's a lot of happiness in this book. There's a lot of pleasure. None of it happens to the main character, of course, but it happens to others around him. And he enjoys that, yes. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of fun in it. I had a lot of fun writing it. It was one of the things that I most enjoyed writing. There's lots of jokes in it. And I put most of the jokes, as you'll be happy to hear, for those of you who haven't read it yet, in the first 100 pages. <laughs> It's a sort of inoculation. Well, because, no, because I knew that I know that most of most people won't get past the first. I never get past the. <laughs> I've never read a book beyond a hundred pages, so <laughs> I thought if I put all the jokes in the first hundred pages, then they'll get good value for money. They don't have to worry about the rest of it. I read the whole book. Did you? Yeah. Lots of people say to me, "I really enjoyed the book." But, you know, the beginning was really good. They say, and you know. <laughs> their hope dripped away as they turned another page. Well, I don't think you do yourself justice with this, this line of talk. Um, they go back to Pakistan when, in, the, in the 70s, I think, with Miriam and Jamal. In the 80s, yeah. In the 80s, Miriam and Jamal are going to find their father who's left uh, England and, and gone back to Pakistan. And he's really interesting. On, he talks about you know, when he left England and went to Pakistan. Um, and it, this was a time before... Um, the mullahs, I suppose, at a time before fundamentalism in Pakistan. And, and he um, found a need to rescue an enlightenment library, really, and or to establish something, because he knew what was coming. Um, and, in fact, he, he had his heart in India, actually. Yeah. Uh, I found that really interesting. Can you talk a, a little bit about that? 
Well, my family, like many other families, moved from India to Pakistan uh, a bit later, though, in the, in the early 50s, uh, with the naive and possibly stupid belief that, that, that some sort of Muslim uh, state could be made based on uh, some sort of Islamic principles. And after a bit, they realized that this was a very daft idea, it was a failure, and would end in catastrophe. And that probably it had been, this is a terrible thing to say, of a disaster that it would be in the newspapers tomorrow, that Pakistan had been made at all, that it would never work, that you couldn't build a state on religious principles, uh, that it would lead inevitably to dictatorship. Um, and something that indeed Voltaire said, that a state built on one religion could only ever be a dictatorship. It seems pretty obvious. Um, and now when I see members of my family, some of whom still live in Pakistan, they look at India and they see that there's this flourishing, wealthy democracy full of art and culture and, and so on. I look at Pakistan, you know, where, which is an extremely dangerous, violent place with uh, very little democracy. They can see that the idea of setting up a state, as they say on religious principles, has been a nightmare. And it's really caught between fundamentalism and the United States. And there can be no worse place to be, I wouldn't have thought. So, I mean, in, in the bigger picture between the, the mess of the e you know, East and the mess of the West, um, you're, you're, you're walking a path through there. Well, and then we came over here. <laughs> and we came to England to take over your country. <laughs> um, to become newsreaders. And, and commanders of the British Empire. That's right. That's right. You're in the tent now, though, aren't you? Queen was very pleased to meet me, Ramona. <laughs> when I got my CBE, you have to stand in this queue uh, to go and meet the Queen. And I was standing next to a very nice man. And I said to him, what, 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 have, what are you here for, sir? And he said, I've devoted my life to, to fighting, as he said, world poverty. And then he looked at me. And he said, what have you done? And I thought, Jesus, what have I done? You know how you do. <laughs> Life's, you know, devoted to, you know, indolence, fecklessness, and perversion. I thought, <laughs> and you feel very, very, you know, humble indeed. And what about the family? What did they think about this? They laughed their heads off. They really did. <laughs> what they really wanted was to meet your fellow countrymen. They thought Kylie Minogue was going to be there. They were much more excited about meeting Kylie Minogue than they were about meeting the Queen. She wasn't there that day. But how did you really feel about meeting the Queen? She was, a charm she was absolutely charming, and she's always she's got a bit of verbal for everybody. She talks to you. Hello. You know, <laughs> she was very charming. It was, and you're not it was, supposed to report what she says, are you? Well, she doesn't say very much. It's not of you know, it's not Oscar Wilde, is she? <laughs> Of Oscar Wilde. The best thing about it is on the, on the medal it says, it says, uh, for God and Empire, it says on the medal. <laughs> no better things in the world, as you can imagine. Where do you keep the medal? Keep it in the kitchen where everyone can see it. <laughs> Try and get my boys to polish it a bit, but they, uh, they're, rather, uh, they're rather rude about it, I have to say. You've got a great life. Sometimes light. they wear it, actually. Do they? Yeah. Yeah. It's 
very funny to see a 10-year-old boy in boxer shorts running around your front room wearing, wearing a CBE around his neck. <laughs> bouncing on his belly button. You've written um, a very cutting line about this gay character talking about Oscar Wilde. He's envious of Jamal's work as a psychoanalyst. And, he's, and he says, fatuous, limitless narcissism can't be what we homosexuals fought for. Can't we think about anything but our hair? Is that going to get you into trouble? Well, I spend my life, I guess, if you're a writer, you spend your life thinking about whether, you, whether what you're doing is limitless narcissism or whether actually it's of any use or any, or any interest to anybody else in the world. I think if you're an artist, you do think about that because the world doesn't really need your books. It can get by perfectly well without another book by Henry Carisha, I have to say. And so the sense of the value of what you do really does affect you. You get up in the morning, you go to your desk and you think, why am I doing this? Why am I alive? You know, maybe I should just kill myself. Um, maybe I should write a short story. Maybe I should do a film. You know, does it have any meaning? And I think... That is part, one of the things about being some sort of an artist is that, you, as it were, you have to create the meaning. If you're a doctor, you, it must be wonderful to work off your guilt by feeling you're being a good person all the time. If you're an artist, you don't feel like, uh, as though you're a good person much of the time. You don't feel as if you contributed anything to the conversation? Um, I have to convince myself that I do, yeah, yes. I think I, the teaching is important to me. Insofar as I can help anybody else, it's, it's through that, helping other people to write and to speak. Tell me about that. Tell me about being a teacher. Well, I got into trouble. I nearly got fired last time. I was at the Hay Festival. Somebody asked me about creative writing courses, which I compared to mental hospitals. <laughs> <laughs> and after I made this remark, the newspapers, of course, rang up the dean at the college where I teach, and the dean, you know, was made into a bit of a kerfuffle about all this. And particularly when I said that I gave all the students the same mark. Is that true? They all get 71%. <laughs> it wasn't entirely true, because if I give them 72%, if they're well-dressed or well-spoken, I decided it was. Anyway, the dean got into a huge kerfuffle about this and I know you've got fired. But I would have to say that I do believe that the, 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 the creative writing courses do have some function and are of some use, i.e. it helps people to write, to speak, to get to know themselves and to, to write something for other people that has meaning. So uh, I, I do actually believe, I don't believe the students are mad. Indeed, I don't believe the teachers are mad. I think the system might be a bit mad, but, but that's a different thing. They would never fire Hanif Qureshi teaching their... Students. I said to them, after this, you'll get much, far more students. The whole thing will get a big boost in college. And indeed, that was the case, as you can imagine. But you did a creative writing course, didn't you? No, of did course not. Did you not? No. Thank not you. that desperate. <laughs> you didn't go to Malcolm Bradbury's course? No, no. My father taught me to write. Because he was a writer, too. My father was a writer. My uncles were writers. So I grew up in a writing family. And my father taught me to write, and, and, and indeed I have many directors, film directors who I've worked with, Stephen Frears, Roger Michel, who have taught me how to write. Uh, Faber and Faber, my editor, Walter Donahue, has helped me with my writing. I mean, you need it all the time, and there are always people 
who you have to rely on who can show you that some of these sentences are crap. Even now? Even now, all the time, yes. Yes. Um, you really need someone to give you a bollocking. Um, even if you take no notice. Do you know what I mean? If someone says to you, I think that paragraph, you know, or that idea or whatever is terrible, then you have to think why it might not be terrible and so on. And it's important for a writer to have that contact, first contact with the reader. I mean, when I'm teaching, what I am is, if, if a student writes something, they give it to me, I'm their first reader, you know, and it moves from their head out, out into the world, and that's, the, that's an important progress, as it were. So I think it's probably time now to open this up to the audience. Um, why don't we have a little bit of the lights up? And you can ask Hanif Qureshi whatever you'd like to ask him. But you have to, there's only one rule, which, means, which is you have to ask it into a microphone, and we've got them available for you. So, who's going to be the first? Yes, sir. Um. I, I was thinking about what you were saying about moving from the inside outwards and that important progression. And I was thinking about what Omar Hale meant to me in the first time I saw Andrette, Briefel Andrette, and um, thought too that. That, that, that your writing constantly shows a kind of transition between inner psychic life, between relationships, and then between politics and group group life in as a whole. And yeah. and for me, that having to share, therefore having to share O'Malley aging in this novel was one of the most yeah, central experiences. It seemed to tell me something about my aging your aging and the aging of a symbol, um, tremendously important, but also, you know, something that kind of captured desires and a, a thing of the moment at the time in the beautiful laundrette, becoming something quite sad and uh, 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 funny, but, but, but also quite uh, something that caused contemplation. Uh, have you anything to say about O'Malley at all? <laughs> and, and um, the gentleman over there seems to be talking about there's a character in the novel, something to tell you, that, it, um, com that comes from My Beautiful Laundrette. And there are some other characters also in this novel which come from uh, the Buddha of Suburbia. Uh, Charlie Hero and... Um, what's the other guy called? <laughs> uh, Kareem Amir from the Buddha of Suburbia. Um, and it's very... Uh, I, having passed 50, it's very entertaining for me to look at characters I created when I was much younger and to see how they, like me, have, have aged and changed. And it seems to me that one of the things you can do with a novel is to show people in movement and to see them growing older and, and becoming disillusioned or indeed even more cheerful as they get older and so on. And that's one of the functions and virtues of the novel that it is able to, to do that. And it also makes me think about what an odd thing I do, which is to make these people up when I'm 25. And there, there I am at 50 thinking, oh, I wonder what happened to so-and-so. What do they do? You know, what have they done in, be in between and so on? So there are characters in this book that, have, that, that, that you'll find you're interested of, 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 of walked out of other books and films in, into this story. Anybody else? Yeah, just... Uh, thank you, Hanif. Uh, could you tell me um, what your position is in the political scene at the moment and how this has affected your writing? 
Um, well, I'm interested in politics, I guess, just like everybody else at a sort of news night level. Um, and I think one of the things that the novel also can do, that our storytelling does do, is pin individuals to the political. So one of the things that I've been fascinated by in my life has really been the story, uh, I guess, of my father, of what it was like, for instance, to be uh, a man who came from India or Pakistan in the 50s uh, to Britain uh, to establish a family, to experience racism, and then to move into the period which we're now in of, I guess, of radical Islam, post 9-11, and all the other stuff. Um, and I guess through my father and my own family in Pakistan, I've managed to, I can see that I'm linked to that. And when I was a young man, there were very few, indeed no books really, written about the experience of racism, the experience of uh, uh, immigration, the experience of trying to integrate and so on. And I began to write about that stuff because I wanted to tell the world about it. I wanted them to know what it was like to be uh, so-called packy. Um, so insofar as writers are of any use and can be representative, they can tell stories about individuals which, which link to the, the wider world, to politics. So I'm interested uh, as an individual in politics, i.e. what Gordon Brown's doing today and so on, but I'm really interested in it in terms of of what's happened in Europe, and certainly, of course, in Britain, um, since I was a kid in the 50 years I've been alive, where we've moved from a more or less entirely white society to a so-called multicultural, multiracial society, and all the problems uh, and pleasures, as it were, that come with all those things. So my writing is an attempt, I guess, at least, to pin those things, two things together, through individual human stories. So that's my politics, in a sense. My politics are not a politics of wishing, as it were, for a better world, but of examining the world that we do live in now at the present and the questions we all have to think about to do with race, religion, immigration, identity, and all the stuff that all of us bother about all the time. Oh, yeah, there's a, a hand up there in the blue. Um, you said earlier that reading books as well as writing them can be a form of therapy. And I wondered if you could tell us which writers, particularly of fiction, you personally find therapeutic. Well, I, am, I don't read much now, actually. <laughs> I used to, my therapy is not reading. I used to read a lot as a kid. Um, I think writing was therapeutic for me as a young man because I could read the stories of other young men who were like me. So when I read The Catcher in the Rye or when I read uh, Port Nice Complaint or when I read On the Road or when I read about Raskolnikov or when I read uh, Balzac and so on, I began to see that my experiences were, n were not, uh, were not, I wasn't isolated. Um, one of the things about being an adolescent is that you do feel rather isolated, I guess, as certainly I did. Um, and one of the things that literature does is, is link you to other people. So when I read the story of, uh, uh, of the beetle in, in Kafka's Metamorphosis of a young man who wakes up and turns into an insect, I began to see that this is the truth of all families in a way for an adolescent. 
you know, this is what family life is, as it were, that you, that certain individual in the, in the family may become freaks for some reason or what, whatever. And so you begin to see that Kafka has understood something about your own situation. So I think that's what I meant about the uses of, of, of literature. And I guess we have to think, I don't know why, we have to think all the time about why high culture exists and why we have it, that we never think about what, why Jordan exists or why we have her and why she's top of the bestseller lists today. <laughs> Uh, but we do think about high culture all the time and its purpose. I have to explain it to ourselves. It's rather odd, that. I can't believe you don't read. What are you doing? What are you doing instead of it? I've got better things to do now, Ramona. What are they? That's a good question. What are they? <laughs> Having conversations with real other people, I think, actually. When you see a kid reading, you know the parent thinks they're a good kid for reading books. There's something very virtuous about reading books. We tend, I think, to rather fetishize books. Um, I think I often use books to keep away from other people, from the real horrible encounters with a real other of other people. I prefer that now. There was a, I saw a hand. Was it? Anybody yes. Firstly, Mr. Qureshi, thank you for that wonderful reading. I very much enjoyed it. Um, now, you seem to be, in a way, in awe of analysts and doctors a little bit, and that's where I come from. That's my background. And I would argue that anybody could be taught to be a doctor, to be an, an analyst. And although you need, obviously, the art of writing, you cannot be taught to be a writer. I could analyse till the cows come home. I can be a doctor. All my days, I hope I help people. I could never sit down and write a novel. And when I first started my career, somebody said to me, you can't be a good doctor unless you read fiction and read literature. And that's what I've been doing ever since. And it's helped me in my work. So I really would like to redress the balance a little bit and say how valued writers can be. Thank you. Um. I think you can teach writing, but you can't, yes, I, you can't teach it in the sense that... I don't think you can teach anybody to be a psychoanalyst either, actually, or to be a doctor for that matter. I mean, you could teach someone to follow the rules all the way through, but they still, as it were, if they followed the rules and didn't move beyond the rules, you'd realise they were mad, wouldn't you? <laughs> I.e. they were counterfeit, they didn't actually have any individuality or creativity. But what I do when I'm teaching writing, what you can do is encourage people in their madness to find themselves, as it were, to be themselves. Um, and they feel safe with you and you listen to them and finally they may begin to speak and say things that they never said before. And in that sense, you're a teacher. Um, I think teachers, uh, you know, my kids, they spend all their time having piano lessons and this lessons and, you know, tennis lessons and so on. So I think writing lessons are a very good thing, but it's not quite like showing someone how to follow the rules. Indeed, when you're teaching writing, it's showing someone how to break the rules or move beyond the rules, I think. And in that sense, it's more like being what they call uh, a mentor than a teacher, I guess. But thank you, yeah. Um, over here. Is this working? Yes, it is. Uh, we must be getting near to the end now. Thank you very much. You've been brilliant. Uh, you couldn't share the story that you wouldn't share at the beginning. No, that was going to be about a story about Daniel Day-Lewis's clothes. And I thought it was probably not a good idea for me to tell that story. And indeed, I'm so wise that I'm not even now going to tell, tell that story. So the analysis has helped, obviously. Yeah, it has. It's, it's, um, made, me it's made me much more repressed than I was before. 
wonder if you'll be too repressed to answer this question. Have you ever come across a, a student whose writing has been so lacking in any hope that you've actually told them to give up? Well, the stupid students are always the best students because there's something rather wonderfully naive about them. The worst students are the ones that want to be successful because, as it were, they're imitating other so-called successful writers and there's nothing of them in it. So stupidity is a great virtue when it comes to being an artist. But the worst ones are the dull ones, the gormless ones. Um, and that's always rather depressing. The ones that are so repressed there isn't any real life there, but they work very hard and they write loads of it. It's the really mad ones that are the most interesting. But what you want to do with the madness is give it a structure and give it boundaries and, you know, so that the madness is, as it were, communicated to, to, to other people. Um, there's a lot of depressed people and a lot of psychotic people on the, on, on the, on the writing courses. Um, and you'll find that, you know, there are many writers in the history of writing who are both psychotic and depressed, and it's not a disadvantage in a, in a, in a writer. Um, but the fact that somebody wants to write at all seems to me to be a sign of life. When you read Beckett's books, you think, God, this man was miserable. Um, but actually, what he was doing was writing very, very funny books. Um, and I think that the, the act of writing, the desire to write, the desire to speak to somebody else, is, is a deep act of, of hope, actually. What and a worthwhile, you, worthwhile thing. What would you do thing. if you couldn't write? What would I do if I couldn't write? Um, what do you mean, couldn't write? Well, if you just stopped writing. I wouldn't know what to do. Uh, there isn't anything. Sometimes I take a few days off and I walk around my study and I go, you know, and I think, well, what do we do now? And then I go and have lunch and I go for a walk and then I go, well, what do we do now? You know, writing is such a passion. It's, it's odd. It doesn't go away if you're an artist. You want to carry on doing it. It's odd to think, isn't it, that someone like Lucy and Freud is, as we speak, sitting in a room painting away. There's no reason why he would have to, but he wants to do it. It's a deep passion and obsession, probably you might call it, to be an artist. You really want to say these bloody things or find out what it is you might want to say by writing it down and so on. It's a very peculiar kind of addiction. Do you think, like Robert Johnson, you've sold any part of your soul? Sold it? Yeah. To the devil for this gift? Well, I'm selling it as fast as I can, I hope. In order, <laughs> um, in order to make a living, actually. Well, uh, that's what I, you know, what I do is, is commercial. I'm trying to make a, li a living and being an, be, being, a, being an artist at the same time. It's quite tricky to put those two things together. I tried to sell my soul to Hollywood a couple of times, actually, but it was not, uh, not really that successful. They didn't find my, you know, they didn't really want my soul, and I didn't particularly want their money. It hasn't really worked. There's something about integrity that never lets you go. Well, you could all contribute to the Hanif Qureshi Fund um, <laughs> because we're now going to uh, walk around to the book uh, shop next door and uh, if you allow us to do that first and then you can um, buy lots of his books and uh, support his children and uh, he'll probably write something in them for you. But please uh, thank him for being in Edinburgh and entertaining us so thank well. You. Thank you. with all that stuff.